Welcome to The Last Supper, a weekly podcast featuring emerging and established artists, gallerists, curators and collectors in Asia. Hello, I'm your podcast host, Oscar Van Huys. In this episode of The Last Supper, I sat down with Jacobo Garcia, who talked passionately about many areas of art. We began our conversation discussing the relationship between singularity and creativity, how he applies his financial risk modeling to assessing art, what he has learned from living in Asia, and finally, why he does not want to live forever. This podcast is supported by Christie's Education. Receive a 15% discount on all the art courses, webinars, and gallery tours. Visit the Christie's Education website and fill in Last Supper 15, and that's all in capital letters. So that's Last Supper 15. You can find the website link of Christie's Education and discount code in this podcast description as well. Welcome, Jacobo, on this beautiful day. How are you feeling today? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. No, thanks for thanks for coming here. Thanks for coming home. And uh, I think we can hear the birds. And uh, yes, indeed, the sea and the birds are loud and clear. Where are we, Jacobo? We are in Chengchao, which is this very quiet, sleepy island, uh, about half an hour away from Hong Kong Island, the main the, the main island. You only can come here by ferry, similar to your place, like Lama. And I moved here about eight years ago, nine years ago. And I moved here because I, I practice windsurfing. We can see the beach from, from where we are recording. And I fell in love with, with the quality of life, which is this very slow pace. And this is something that actually I needed. I used to work prior to dedicating fully to the collection. I used to work in banking. And banking is quite demanding. Your brain power demands a lot of brain power. So you need, a, you need to find space to reset your mind. And Chen Chao for me was perfect. I always found, I used to live in the city before and I always found it very noisy. I entirely agree that island life in Hong Kong is a real luxury. Let's begin because there's a lot to uncover and discover in this episode, uh, Jacobo. You are the owner of Divide by Zero. And the first thing that struck me when I was doing my research was your emphasis on the singularity that you relate to creativity. Please explain to me what the correlation between singularity and creativity is. That is uh, quite an interesting story because I revised that relationship recently thanks to uh, ChatGPT, thanks to artificial intelligence. But the relation that I have between singularity or, okay, or let me try to rephrase it. The reason I opted for the name divide by zero for the collection was well thought. I, it took me a long time when I took the decision to formalize this habit that I had of collecting and appreciating and researching. I wanted to do it more systematically, so I decided like I want to come up with a name that represents like my thought process. And then I tried to narrow it down like what exactly is what I'm after when I look at a work. And and I remembered as a kid, I was always impressed by the fact that the artist were once facing a white canvas. For example, the works that you see here, these works were once an absolutely white canvas. And there was that point of singularity where the artist came like, aha, I get it, and boom, finishes a work. So for me, divide by zero, which is a singularity, is an undefined term mathematically. It creates a, an infinity. Is that point. I'm, I'm trying to identify that point where the artist has an, an abstract idea and finds that moment or finds that way to 
make it more concrete for for the world to communicate with us, right? To try to give it a shape. So then that idea it can communicate with the public. So I'm after that. And that is actually that point of singularity. And finally, that, that with the observation that I made with ChatGPT recently, I actually typed it in a ChatGPT, make, please make a relation between my, my statement versus the mathematical concept of a singularity. And it came up with this term. And actually, it, I actually put it on my Instagram. And it came with something really smart. But it wrote like, uh, yeah, in that indeed, like I said, as dividing by zero defines a, a singular point, uh, uh, an infinity. The moment of a singular point is defined, uh, divides the, the point of imagination and creativity. That there's like a middle point between imagining something and then making it happen. There's that point, that transition point, that like a that transcending point. And that is divide by zero for me. And that is actually the spirit of my collection. So... All the works that I collect are, are, are always looking for that tiny point, that tiny, tiny, tiny singular point of transcendence. Not only the collection, but the talks that I do at the M+, everything that I do, everything that I prepare is always, my quest is always searching for that point. And because once you identify that point of that narrow point, then explaining the work becomes extremely easy. But looking for the point is very complicated. You need to do a lot of research to eventually narrow down to that singular moment. We'll be addressing this tipping point or transition point in more detail. But before we do this, when I arrived and we sat down off air or just before we began recording, you gave me an A4 sheet of paper with several columns, a kind of organizational chart. Tell me what I'm looking at here. What, what you're looking at is actually my business plan. So I started designing those business plans about four years ago. So I will tell you like that, pretty much like my, my, my story and then on the story of Divide by Zero collection. So I was born in Colombia in 1975 and uh, when I was born it was the beginning of a uh, the drug war, we were going through a period of, uh, of, 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 of guerrilla violence uh, uh, that roots back from the Cold War and the Soviet tension in Latin America. And I mean, of course, you can read Chile and Brazil and Venezuela and Argentina and so on. That political violence that it roots from there. And then that political violence, like transforming or morphing into some sort of like uh, commercial violence that fed into, uh, into the drug war. Pablo Escobar and so on. So I grew up during that period. And also, I mean, we discussed this earlier, but everything that I'm saying, I'm saying it with the benefit of hindsight because time has passed and had made me wise. And also living in Hong Kong, I see it from a different perspective. I now understand it from a different perspective. But when I was growing back in Colombia, we always had the perception that, that Colombia was somewhat isolated with the rest of the world, right? And for me, was, I was always very curious that the only window that I had to the, to the bigger world was always the TV, and the TV was always kind of like a prettier than the realities of Colombia. And I can give you a very good example. I actually recently had a conversation with someone about this. There used to be a, t- a TV show called The A-Team in, when I was a kid. It was an American show. And that show, every time they used to go to Mexico, it was like chickens and <laughs> that kind of like a type of propaganda that was heavily advertised not only on that show but in many American shows they always portray Latin America as some sort of like a backyard type of a place 
right, underdeveloped, uh, not only the infrastructure, but uh, um, intellectually. And that actually grows in you. So as I was, I was growing up, I grew up with that sense of like a, like a cultural inferiority. And not only me, like the, the entire, you can talk to any Colombian, it will actually relate to that, that Colombian normally have a, a tendency to have a, uh, to see themselves as a, a culturally inferior. From a very young age, I was always very curious, like, this, this is like, no, this sounds like there's something odd here. The other seed was a Bible that my mom had at home. It was this beautiful Bible, and she keeps it because it used to be from my grandmother. So my mother, we are not religious at home, but my mother keeps it because it's a token from, from, her, from her mother, right? It's from my grandmother. So she keeps it as, as, as that memento. So it had those these beautiful religious paintings, classical uh, works, Italian painters and Spanish painters and so on. And the words were always very moving. Yeah, like you have the words like Botticelli and Greco and Tintoretto and so on. And so on. Works that are very of, of religious uh, character, but they are very persuasive. They're in the compositions, the colors, because they want to evoke an emotion because that was kind of like the propaganda of the, of the church at that time. And I always, always intrigued, like, how these works were so persuasive. And, I, and, and at a very young age, I was probably four years old, I realized that these were not photos. Yeah, because at that time when I was growing up, TV was already on. So I was already aware that reality was very different from these paintings. These paintings were paintings. And at a very young age, I realized, like, someone made this. Not only painted it, but painted it with that emotion. And that, that's a realization that I had from a very young age. And that created that is really started my curiosity. So I think from from a very young age, I was always very curious to to see like try to find the the, the underlying meaning of things, not to take anything like face value. Uh, so the example of uh, of the A team, like uh, why they are presenting like Latin America like this, like my house is not like this. I don't see chickens running around. Why is it like that? Or why is this painting? like presenting like this god this white looking god imposing fear into the people uh, at the grassroots level why i was always very curious and of course that curiosity kind of started growing on me then i went to school i went to school in colombia and everything was great then i went to university and in university was when i started discovering art right because then you have you are like 14 15 no no university was probably 18 but of course, I used to go to shows with my parents and so on. And I was always looking at the work. Especially when I was a kid, like, this work, why is this work here? Why is this work like that? And then when I went to university now in my 18, 19, 20s, I was doing shows by myself. So I was really spending time uh, looking at works. And I do remember that at that time, a lot of works were very political. About like the, pol- the political violence of the 60s, 70s. Colombia has always had a very turbulent political uh, history. And most of the works that you see, not only in Colombia, but across Latin America, you, you, you find is uh, social realism. There are works that are, they, they present that, that class struggle between like, the elites and the... Uh, and all these works that I saw were always very violent. So my, parents were, my dad is, loves history. My dad is a history buff, so he was always very keen to explain me, like, this happened during this period, and I, this president, and whatever, he did this. And, but when I was listening to the stories, I was not necessarily understanding word by word what he was saying, but I was understanding that with the implicit meaning, like there's like an elite trying to retain power and then you have the, the people behind struggling with it. And then of course my dad, as a history buff, he introduced me to Marx and Lenin and so on. And 
from a very young age. So that gives you the kind of like a realization that there's, there's a hidden meaning to everything, right? But it's not necessarily always so explicitly communicated. And having that sense of curiosity to understand why led me into eventually finishing my, my, my school. I studied business administration in Colombia and, and I was always very keen to leave Colombia, not because I wanted to leave Colombia, but it's because I wanted really to see the world. Like at that time it was very difficult to, uh, for Colombians to travel, it was very expensive. There were visas and all sorts of uh, hurdles to, uh, to travel overseas. It was very complicated. Amidst all the political and social unrest in the early 80s, you decided to go abroad and see the world. Describe to me, if you can still recall this, your very first trip outside of Colombia and the impact it had on you as a teenager. I was in university and I traveled when I was, I think I was 17, the first time that I went to Europe, right? I, I remember that, that flight. That, that, that flight was, it's, it's quite funny because that was the last flight I took where people were still smoking in the plane. And it was an 11-hour flight from Bogota to Rome <laughs> in Alitalia. And people were smoking in the back and it was just a nightmare. So I can tell you, like, there's a reason why people don't smoke in planes. You don't want to be there. Believe me, you don't want to be there. It's horrible. But one of the experiences that I had, one of the realizations that I, that I had about that, that cultural inferiority was on that trip. When I landed, I remember I had my backpack because I was backpacking. So I'm, I'm coming by myself. I was 17 years old and one police official calls me and called me to the side. Yeah, because the flight was from Colombia, so you get all the security because of the drugs and so on. And the guy comes, takes my bags and empties on the floor, the policeman. And then he takes that with his foot, starts like spraying all my clothes. And then he looks at me like, okay, you can go. And then you realize like, okay, now I understand this TV show, The A-Team. So this is real. We are inferior and we are treated inferiorly. And I was like, but this doesn't feel right. And I remember, so th- th- this is like the thoughts that, uh, that, that, that stay with you. And I was, so when I travel, I was like, this doesn't feel right, but I want to understand the right that to go back to Colombia with resentment, close the door and say like, I'm never leave this place, which I see it often in Colombia. When you go to Colombia, you see a lot of people always talking about how great the country is and why bother traveling overseas when everything is in this country and so on. I'm like, that is such a narrow mentality, which I'd, this is one of the reasons I, I always struggle going there because, not because the, the violence or the perception that people have is because the, I really struggle with, with the narrowness of, uh, of thinking of Colombian society in general. I'm talking as, I'm generalizing as an average. I mean, I, there's great people there. My parents are very open-minded and so on. But in general terms, people are very, uh, very narrow-minded and I struggle with that because I decided when I went back and I was finishing my schools, I decided that I was too combat that, that I can combat that narrowness, that I'm not going to. And, uh, and I decided, and, I, and at that time I do, I, I applied for an internship uh, when I was finishing my university, it was with the Standard Chartered, the bank. And when I was in the Standard Chartered, there was always the opportunity to travel, and I was like, I want to travel, but I want to travel not for the reasons that everybody thinks, because everybody's like, ah, you want to go for a better opportunity. Like, I know I want to travel because I want to learn the, the ways of the world. And I remember, so I went, I left Colombia, and then they moved me to Peru. And that actually opened up my mind, of course. Even though it was Peru and you speak the same language culturally, you realize that people are very different. They speak differently, they eat differently. 
And that opportunity, eventually, after a year and a half, the bank was closing down. They did this short stint in Latin America that didn't work, and they decided to close down. But they were looking for talent. And uh, my boss at that time asked me if I wanted to uh, to move, and he offered me two positions: one in London and one in Singapore. And I was like, oh, between London and Singapore, so I was like, well, London is quite easy to go, and it's quite known to me because you see it on TV and so on. But Singapore, like, I have no idea what that place is. Really, I had no clue. I used to, I only see it on TV that it was like one of the Asian tigers that is growing like crazy and they're doing really well. But I had no idea. Besides that, I had no idea about Singapore, really, until, pretty much until I landed. I had really no clue what Asia meant. So I decided, like, I mean, this is a golden opportunity. And I remember that for me moving to, I was kind of like a manager at the time, and for me moving to Asia was kind of like getting a demotion. So I had to be like an analyst and getting a pay cut and so on. And I'm like, I'm thinking long term, this is going to be incredibly valuable. And I decided to take that job in, uh, in Singapore. And it was really rewarding. I remember from the moment that I landed, I landed and he was just saying that, for us, Asia was always this kind of like a very romanticized version with this kind of like a Taoist-looking temples and some bamboo with a panda somewhere. That's how it's presented in, in, a, in especially in Latin America. That I mean, to a point that anybody that is Asian-looking, in Colombia especially, everybody that is Asian-looking is by default called Chinese. I used to have a, a Japanese girlfriend. She came once to Colombia. She used to get really upset about it, right, uh, rightfully so. But, uh, but that's kind of like the narrow perception that they had. And, and of course, I came and realized that it was super modern, super advanced. Like, And of course, you have like Colombia's like, okay, I think Colombia's quite fair enough. And you're like, no, this place is like the future. To a point that I had it with a joke. I have one of my good friends. She's from uh, Venezuela. And... Uh, and I mean, she, we used to joke about it, like you live in the future. So like, yeah, because of that, initially it was because of the time difference. When we used to talk, it was the time difference. But I found that people in Asia were really forward thinkers. They really saw like, we're moving forward. And Colombia was always very static. And you see it, for example, in the art. I mean, until this day, Latin American art is all about social, uh, social tensions. It's this social realism. And in Asia, most of the expressions that you see today are exploring relationship with technology. It's so way ahead. And when I came to Asia, I, I fell in love with that and like how, that, how progressive people were, especially in the, in the way of thinking. And of course, the, 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 the systems were different. The, the government systems were different. I lived in Singapore and, uh, and uh, I, I know what is a, a, a very rigid uh, uh, management system, especially in government, what it could be, but you understand what their goal is, right? Uh, and you understand, and you see them delivered. I mean, Singapore, Singapore is like a quasi-monarchy, right? It's all the Lee family that uh, that runs everything, but you are to realize that they do have a very strong social agenda. They really care about social progress. For them, is the number one. We need to, they, we need, they realize that their most valuable capital is intellectual capital, is human capital. So they need to take care of it. Back in Colombia, remember, it was, oh, it's all about coffee, it's all about sugar, it's all about commodities, right? But in, they never really care about the people until this day. In Latin America especially, you never hear 
any politician that says our most valuable resource is human capital. But whereas in Asia it's different, most even China, they realize that the most valuable resource that they have is human capital, that intellect. Because and this is the reason why people move forward so, the societies move, move forward so quickly. I was always intrigued by that and I think that hooked me in. So when you were in Singapore, was that the time you became really interested in purchasing art? I wasn't collecting. No, I, I really started collecting when I moved to Hong Kong. But I was really into shows, really into museums, really into opera. I was really into the art. Because at, at that time I was, I realized that uh, that art gave me that capacity to to to, to visualize the abstract. Uh, I tried to decode a work. And I was, I remember that reading Rothko and and all the, all the great uh, great masters. Uh, I remember there was the... The Zhao Wuqi that was in the in Raffle City that later was auctioned, but that work was at the, at the Raffle City, the, the shopping mall. It was right in the shopping mall, this giant Zhao Wuqi. And I remember staring at that work. It was orange. It was beautiful. It was like, and of course, you start reading. I want to know what's the background of this work. And you start reading about uh, Chinese art and calligraphy and the background of Zhao Wuqi. And it's like, and of course, you start like an, an, an unfolding all this uh uh, all this art history, it's like this is beautiful. You start going to a lot of shows in, in, in Singapore, in Asia, and it's all about this Chinese art and calligraphy and so on, and you realize how connected it is to nature and, and this, it's like the concept of Zen, that in the West is like, ah, it's all calm. No, it's about the connection to nature. Like, for example, what we have today is this connection of this Zen. We have this moment of calmness, not because the setting is beautiful, it's because this nature, the sound and everything is... Is meant to tone us down. It's to give us that lower pace. And I discovered, I only discovered that when I really went into Asia, discovering, looking for it with that curiosity, trying to find what makes this place tick. And of course, you need to start reading into history, and uh, and that was that was very enriching. It took me into uh, into path that I, I I never thought. So time passed. I was living in Singapore, and eventually. I mean, work uh, moved me to Hong Kong. By that time, I was uh, I already had financial means because uh, my financial means I was already working in investment banking all, all my career. And I do remember at that time it was I think it was the first year that I arrived to to Hong Kong. At that time was it was in Art Basel. It was uh, I always forget the name. I think it was the Hong Kong Art Market. I think it was the name of uh, someone can correct me, but I cannot remember the name. Anyway. So I remembered I used to go there, and of course I, I was aware of the place that it was like the biggest market for uh, for art in Asia and so on. So I used to come here to see the show was a uh, somewhere, and I used to get fascinated seeing uh, works by Calder and Picasso, Miro, everything. And I used to tell people like what you see there is far richer than than in any museum in the world. And at that time I already pretty much visited all the great museums in the world, in the mob from New York to Europe, anywhere. And the, the amalgamation of work that you see at these fairs was incredibly enriching. You see a Rothko like this, because I used to see the works quite differently. I used to go with friends and they're like, ah, okay, yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, it costs so much money. And I'm like, no, it's, it's Rothko. It's like Rothko. Uh, so I moved to Hong Kong and I made it like, okay, I have this passion for, for art. Art is aids me. In my research, not only that, art calms me down. It really resets my mind. I feel that art opens my mind and gives me that clarity. It's like when people practice meditation. They're always trying to find that 
that clarity in their mind, I usually find it with art. I, I go to museums and people, I bump into people in museums and they see me like looking at a painting for like 20 minutes, like, dude, what's wrong with you? Like, no, no, nothing. I'm just thinking about something. But it's because I'm trying to decode it. I'm trying to find that nirvana moment in my head that I see it with art. That when I decided to go like, like, okay, this is serious. So I always had this, this impulse, like I cannot stop art. I love art. And I love it not because it's beautiful, it's because it's meaningful. And so I had savings, I had like a certain savings and I remember walking into a, into a gallery that I'm still very close to that gallery. It's a, a gallery that I cannot pronounce the name and I know that I'm going to say something ridiculous, but it's a gallery in Berlin. It's called Negorich Schneider, something like that. <laughs> it's the most complicated name, sorry. And I have family in Germany and it's like, they always make fun of me. It's a name like super long. They had, at that time, they had a, a, an artist that I was fascinated with because of the exploration of light, uh, which is Olaf Eliasson, the Icelandic uh, Danish artist. So I knew about him and, uh, and they had this beautiful watercolor, small. And I was like, I need to do this. I need to do it. Like, I had never bought a work more than a thousand US dollars, but I need to do it. And, and it was, and actually I wrote it on my story, like that, 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 that the reason where I beat that fear because I mean, as you know, uh, galleries can be very intimidating and because they sell luxury, uh, luxury items, right? So they want to preserve that sense of uh, exclusivity. So they really want to shun people off to, to make the product appear even more exclusive. But in this case, I went into, uh, I work into the booth and I really asked genuinely, like, uh, I mean, I, I like the artist and I know the artist, I know what it does. And I think the galleries look at me like, this guy knows his stuff. So she said, like, yeah, actually, we have a catalog here. If you want to sit down and, and, I mean, you can go to the catalog and we have these works. We also have some other works in the background, some more uh, watercolors. I mean, just, just ask me. She kind of like, uh, just gave me the catalog and said, like, I sit down, take your time. No, no, no. If you have any questions, just come and ask me. And I think that easiness, that was very welcoming, that she was not like most galleries, kind of like uh, they push you off. When they say, like, okay, you have no money, they kind of like a push you off. No, she said, like, this guy really likes the artist. So I have these catalogs and these places, the chairs are empty. Like, I don't mind. So I was looking into the, the catalog and so on. And then I, I remember, I said, like, I, I would like to acquire the work. And she's like, okay, I have these works available. I said, like, yeah, I would like to get this one. I bought my first more than a thousand euros dollars work and it felt great. It felt great that acquiring that work, not because it was beautiful or expensive, it's because it meant a lot of things. I, I, first of all, I bought it because I understood the artist and I understood what he was doing. It's, it's from a, the work is from the Horizon series. So Eliasson, Olafur Eliasson did a, a few years ago, he did a, a whole exploration about the Horizon and he was uh, playing with light. Uh, so he did a series of uh, works on glass and and uh, actually, I think that, that the one that at the Leo Museum, the one on the stairs in uh, Korea, I think it's from that series. So, which is, is, is anything that is playing, or playing around with the perspective of the horizon. So I bought the work for, the, for that basis. And also I realized, like, I can't beat this fear that I have with galleries. I know how to speak to them. Like, if I go and I speak to them in terms that they will understand, then they will talk to me and they will open the door to me. And I was like, hmm, okay, I get it. And then that took off. And that took off. And I remember start going to shows and, and getting invited to, uh, to events and eventually 
realizing that I can speak those words, speak the big words, and also not only speak the big words, so I can speak the big word on the left and then pass it back in simple words on the right. And I had that capacity. I realized that I can speak, it's like uh, someone speaking two languages, like I can speak these languages, I can translate that. Or the people that work in the art world, they always like to type for people. People that have money, of course, and people that have a passion, right? And for me, I take it, I take on the second one. Like people told me that I was very passionate. Like I, I really look at art to try to, for the passion. And because of that sincerity, that led me into, uh, into being invited into shows and, and so on. And for example, one of the, when I was living in Singapore, I was close to the, to the consulate. And uh, Fernando Botero, which is one of the greatest uh, uh, living artists today, this is from Colombia, he was doing an a installation of sculptures across the promenade in Singapore. And the consulate, because they saw that I was quite interested in art and I was always kind of like going to all the shows and so on, they invited me like, ah, oh, there's going to be this dinner and uh, you want to come? And I'm like, uh, sure. So I went. And I had the opportunity to talk to him, to talk to his wife, and I mean, talk about his practice and sit down with him. And I actually have the book, he signed me a book. And it was like, this whole, this would never happen in Colombia. Never, 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 ever. Why is that? Why would this never happen in Colombia? Or why would you never be invited to meet and have dinner with an artist? Because, for two reasons. One, because Colombia is too big and it's like the general public and he's a. Uh, uh, this is actually the other reasons why I like living in Asia because you see a lot of being a lot of advantages being a minority one so in Colombia one is because I mean it's the, I'm, I'm part of the general public so for me to reach him out is, is going to be far more difficult because they're going to be more layers they're going to be institutions and museums and so on right here because I'm part of a minority I get um, I can use that as to my advantage and get picked up more easily because I'm more, it's, an hour, it's a smaller group. I only need to work on my interest and the reason why they decided to invite me was primarily because I had a strong interest on, a, on arts and the guy that the consul was like, okay, I need to fill the, the, probably I think that was his thinking, like, okay, I need to fill this, this table with 20 people and this guy kind of like likes art, like, okay, let's invite him. So I took that opportunity and I sat down with him and he was, he was explaining me like where he started, how he did it, how much he struggled. Uh, on the conversation, he was saying that he, for about 20 years, he was doing the, the volume figures and, uh, and nobody was believing in him, like nobody. He was broke and no money, nothing. And he was living in Paris at the time and how difficult it was. But he was determined, 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 eventually until he got recognized by the, by this, by the academic value. I think uh, that the great... Uh, the greatness of, of Botero is not about the aesthetics, but is is the academic value because he he really mastered the technique of adding volume to anything. I mean, the beauty of uh, I mean, just to add parentheses here, but if you go to if you analyze Fernando Botero, he's, he's very known for the fatties, for the the people with with volume, right? Like fat people. But I don't think society think that those are like the best works. The best works are like the works on a still life. And you look at anything that is an object, like a knife or a fruit or something, and you see that is volume, that he depicts volume. He has this technique with lighting and so on and, and curvature that he adds volume to anything. And there's one work that is like a, a, a piece of a sheet 
on a table and the sheet like the thinnest object you can find that object has volume that is the reason that is the greatness for me now uh, obotero of, 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 technically he is like he discovers something that is now being taught in uh, schools but so yeah that was the parenthesis but going back to the story of Botero, like so I, I sat down with him and I, I talked to him he told me the stories and I found that fascinating like he has this idea he believes in this idea and he was determined no matter what to explore it to continue it and, and to make something out of it and this is something that I noticed that is is a constant across all great artists that they believe in something and they don't let go I mean you see for example Kusama you see the Kusama show now at the M plus she has this realization of infinity and she didn't let go for seven until today she's still practicing today and it's like this greater ether I'm not letting it go I need to understand it I need to understand it and it's that determination that is for me what 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 separates uh, an artist from a great artist is that determination If you like this podcast, there are a few small things you can do to make a big difference. Click the follow button of this podcast and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Thank you and let's continue. If I heard it correctly, you began your career in finance and specifically in risk management. And you explained how you developed your analytical skills over the years. How do you apply this knowledge to your current work as a collector and art advisor? I applied it a lot. It's... Uh on several grounds. In the work in finance, I always work in risk management, right? And when you're managing money uh, that is not yours, which is the money from the bank, you need to be, and especially uh, when you're managing very large amounts of money, in this case, billions of dollars, there's no moral right or wrong. In the world of banking, I can tell you, in the world of banking, there's no moral right or wrong is either is either is or isn't it's very binary so you need to be really pragmatic down to earth very logical and put any biases aside to really understand money because the reality is that if you show some sort of like bias or it can it can be exploited yeah that, that would be taken as a weakness and it can be exploited I remember when, when I joined banking during risk management, it was primarily mostly on, on statistics like volatility of the markets and liquidity and so on. And when I left banking 20 years later, those things were quite highly automated. So they were very predictable because you have all the models, but the real risk were mostly on fraud risk, operational risk, things that you cannot quantify. And you can see it like this cyber attacks and so on is, is when they're trying to attack and trying to get... Uh, trying to get money money out of it or getting for example like one of the biggest losses that uh, that banks incur today is, is on fines and from a bank perspective a loss is a loss regardless if it's a fine a, a credit loss a default is a loss is a loss yeah and you need to reserve capital for that so for them is always trying to you need to be very pragmatic on your approach to risk management you need to quantify everything even if you morally agree or disagree with it you need to quantify it because eventually what you want to do is code it or find a, 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 an algorithm to it find a formula an algorithm I refer as a formula and then code it in a way into a procedure or something and then risk manage it accordingly which is uh, which is quite tied to the real essence of, of, of science besides exploring 
what really science wants to do is to replicate. So they want to explore an idea, understand it, and once you understand it, you code it and replicate it and use it for your own benefit. And banking is like that. Banking is you understand everything to the lowest possible tiny detail because you need to risk match everything to the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest detail. And then you frame around. But in order to, to understand the tiniest detail, you need to understand the philosophy of it. And there's one book that I recommend for anybody that is pursuing the career in banking. I recommend you to read, uh, I think it's Nietzsche, the Beyond Good and Evil. You really understand that, uh, especially that the concept of perception. A lot of our moral understandings come from constructs, like ethical, moral principles. And I understood that on banking. Banking gave me that, uh, that capacity to be very cold, down-to-earth, very logical thinker. But on the other side, art gave me that, it was kind of like that, the other side of the coin. Art gave me that human spirit to create. So you create something out of nothing and then kind of like a science then studies and replicates it in a very cold way because they just try to exploit it to the maximum. Uh, so banking gave me that capacity to really be able to analyze not only the work, but also the dyna dynamics behind the work. And, and especially now, because uh, on my later years after, uh, after, uh, after the... As the, the collection progressed, I ventured into patronage and supporting artists, and and uh, and so and I started I started looking at at, at all the dynamics that affect the art, uh, especially in this case the art market, uh, which is items like, for example, hype, or or uh, or someone or who controls the narrative in in in, uh, in um, uh, what we call the who has the power. And there's a great book called The Alchemy of Finance by George Soros like again he gets a lot of bad rep for that book that book is extremely influential uh, which is uh, the influence of power in the, in the world of money which is the main driver and, and you see it also in the art world in the art world today especially with the mega galleries they are they can sell millions of dollars and price these works out of thin air and put these very high valuations not because they are Hauser it's because they control the narrative they have the power So what the price that you see on the work is 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 power. What is 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 what it is. That big pricing, that big premium that they charge, is because they have the power to move the market. Because they control, they control the narrative, they control the museums, they control everything. They con I mean, you can see it at the, I mean at many museums that you see like the, the houses and Gagosian pushing to to put their artists in the, into exhibitions. So. My world of banking helped me realize that, that there are these dynamics that are not necessarily financial, but are far more powerful than the dynamics that people just generally understand as the main drivers. I mean, for example, the power of culture. And uh, we were discussing that earlier, like the power of, uh, of uh, or, 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 or my, my understanding of about uh, Colombia. Like, for example, that, that, that reason why I left uh, to see the world was because I had that Power. I could have easily stayed in Colombia, as I said earlier, saying like, okay, I'm supposed to be intellectually inferior because that's how the world says. And I'm like, and that's how the social pressure says. And I'm like, no, I want to uh, decode it. And banking actually gave me that method to do that and, and amplify it into, uh, into the collection. So I think in the bigger scheme of things, uh, banking gave me that philosophy to really look at things beyond good and evil.
You describe your method or approach very broadly. But if you don't mind, I want to delve a bit deeper into your approach and discuss what makes your method so unique. When you analyze risk in finance, it is of course all about the process that, as you said, you want to replicate. Whereas in arts, there is an additional level of complexity, the unpredictable element of human behavior or the behavior of the artist. I recall in my early days, part of my job was to predict global and local trends and consumer behavior across different industries. So I'm really curious, what kind of data do you analyze that other people do not look at in art? And what gives your method of art analysis an advantage over competitors? I think, uh, first of all, my method, I don't, re- I don't really want to be the best of anything. I, I, I have a developed a method that explains matters to me. I think that is what, what, what it matters. I always try to keep, and for, the, for me, that's the motto of this co- my collection is that it has to be independent. Independent, I mean, not like it's owned by myself. Like it has to be an independent thinker. And that is, I want this collection to be known for its intellectual understanding rather than for the works that it collects. Right, and that has been my push, and I do that on my on my Instagram a lot. That is all about my thinking process. It's never about the works that I collect. The works that I collect is just a product of that thinking process. Why? Because I see that this is how reality operates. Everything that you see being constructed from physical items to social behaviors is a byproduct of something more fundamental. It's a byproduct of a philosophy. So my approach is based on that. It's not because I want to find that single formula that goes to 42, like the, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which this book is, is brilliant. And nobody gets it until only a few people get why 42 because everybody's trying to find that final formula. It's impossible. It's, we live in a multiverse. We have multiple factors and all these factors are change constantly. Another reason why I call that, that collection Divide by Zero, I, I study people that know me, they know that I'm fascinated by the topic of uh, infinity. And the problem with infinity is not like that because the, the center of the infinity is known, right? It's, it's, let's say it's a black infinity. So the center of infinity is black, right? So that's not the problem, right? The problem with any infinity and in, in, in mathematics, infinity is changing and uh, they have different sizes of infinity. It's always with the borders the limit of the infinity that is undefined. And this is something, for example, that you see on the works of Rothko. When you see Rothko, you see the, the color tran- transition, but the beauty of Rothko is that transition between two colors because you see that that transition is always very blurry, which is the same concept of infinity, which is the same concept of reality. So the reason why there's no single formula to do something is because the world is dynamic in itself. So today, for example, it could be political incentives that are driving the market. Tomorrow can be just liquidity. Tomorrow or any other day could be something else because we live in a dynamic ecosystem. And this can easily be explained by, by C physics and you study entropy and so on. You can see that, uh, or thermodynamics, you can see all the laws of thermodynamics. We're living in a world that everything is caused by multi-factors, not a single factor. If you apply that way of thinking that is multiple factors that derive an outcome, you understand, for example, debates that people have with the feminism or, or many uh, activism that, uh, that you have, that, in, that indeed they are very based uh, on very good grounds, but they always try to narrow to one single factor, and it's not the case. That's actually, that becomes, when, when people try to 
narrow something into a single factor, that view becomes extremely short-sighted. And that's the reason why they lose focus. And eventually, you translate it into the, like a day traders and so on, that's the reason why they lose money. Because they think that because the market went yes, up yesterday, so it has to go today. No, that's not the case. You need to look at all the different factors. And in banking, that's what we do. We, we call it actually risk factors. We try to look at risk factors, apply weights. We do all that analysis to see what are the leading risk factors that actually influence a market or a product or, or anything. What are like the, the risk factors that define the limit of the, 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 the border of that infinity? For me, that is kind of like the basis for the collection. I'm always looking for multiple factors to explain a work and normally is uh, in, in the art world is that is called context so i'm always looking for that context but context is factors what you just explained about context and complexity this approach reminds me of my study of design management where i studied peter Senge's systems thinking i think his book is called the fifth discipline And what I mean by systems thinking is that this is an approach to problem solving and decision making that involves looking into the relationships and interactions between different individual elements of a complex system. So rather than just looking at individual parts in isolation, systems thinking involves understanding how they work together to create the overall behavior of that system. Systems thinking involves considering the feedback loops, delays, and the non-linearities that can affect system behavior, and recognizing that changes made to one part of the system can have unintended consequences somewhere else. Is that a fair description of your approach to art analysis? Yeah, there is a fair with, uh, with the only caveat is that my, I always have kind of like escape valve. That I, that I always know that there's something coming in because we live in a in dynamic, uh, constant, constantly dynamic uh, environment. So there's always something new because things morph into something else. And that is just evolution. Uh, evolution takes, you take from two legs to three legs to four legs, it's just, it's just evolution. Things are constantly uh, dynamically changing. So uh, uh, in rigid systems, even though you consider like a multi-factor, is you need to realize that you need to incorporate randomness. There's an element of randomness. For example, when you study law, all the contract agreements, they normally have, they always have a, a clause for randomness, which is this uh, force majeure. Any sound agreement that you read, they always have a force majeure agreement in it, somewhere there. But effectively, what this force majeure uh, clause it is, it's actually trying to factor for random events, like things that you cannot really predict because this is how the world is because there's always something new. So that's, uh, I think, uh, and I invite people to try not to see the world as a perfect system. This Ray Dalio, for example, does, uh, someone that I admire greatly, I mean, I read all his books, he always he always try to be imperfect. Imperfect knows like, no, he said, no, no imperfect, imprecise. I correct. Try to be, always try to be imprecise. By, by what he means is try to, like always look at the border of that infinity, which is very imprecise, because that, that gives you maneuverability. But if you are like, a, it's like four, and four has to be, you're going to commit errors because life is going to move in a certain way that eventually is going to prove that that error, that four, no longer applies. And that is going to happen, I think, in the world of physics. I studied, I mean, I found physics fascinating. I think as we are moving closer and faster and so on, I think down the road at the moment that we start 
transmitting or doing stuff around uh, speeds of light, the formulas of Einstein are going to go because the perspective will be different. The dynamics are going to be different. Chris Nolan refers to that in the in the Interstellar. The way you describe your approach is that while there is a systematic method, simultaneously you accept the element of the unexpected nature of art. When we focus on the logical part of your method, how would you describe this and what are the steps and phases of this assessment process? Okay, let's take an example. Let's do an example that I have. Uh, okay, let's look at that work that is by the Lou Brothers, right? My thought process when I, when I first saw it. That work, I acquired that work about eight years ago, nine years ago. I bought it at an auction. That was, uh, I think it was Bonham's or Phillips. I cannot remember. And I noticed, so I, when I saw the work, I was, at that time, I was, I was quite intrigued by, by political pop. And uh, in China, I think it was a movement. And when I approached it, it's something consistent to after I discussed with Ulysses years later. But at that time, my approach was very, very different, but was quite consistent. China has changed. And there's a sense of, uh, of cynicism that I see because uh, the openness and, and uh, the influence of, the, of new ideas, in this case, or Western ideas coming into it. And I was flying to China uh, regularly, and I noticed that China took like uh, the ones almost sacred symbols like for example Mao propaganda posters and so on what we're now seeing by the new generation we're now seeing more casually I noticed that China the China of the 2000 was very different of the China of 75 China was far more open it was a certain easiness certain relaxation towards uh, the ones very rigid cultural icons like everything that wasn't the from the cultural revolution so the Lou brothers take these posters, right? Uh, they took all the, it's, it's a collage work, and they, they took all the works of uh, the propaganda posters, all these kids, like, okay, progress and so on. But then they combine it with uh, like Coca-Cola cans, right? And, and for me was, what I found interesting is, because the work that I have there is extremely subtle. So you see the work, when you see the work, you see like the kids, and you see it's very, it has this very propaganda style. But back in the end, there's a train. And on top of the train, there's a Coca-Cola can. And the kids are actually pointing to that Coca-Cola can. It's very subtle, but it's that irony of it that they see it like, okay, that is progress. Is that West? And I noticed that this is. And, and at that time when I was looking at that work, was like, I mean, this work is is really showing that that split, that cultural splitting way of thinking in China. That China no longer has this very strong social uniform identity. They see that the the way of progress is coming from somewhere else. Is going to be like a Western letter. You can you can see it by the symbolism of uh, of Coca-Cola, which actually that's actually what happened. Uh, the progress that we had in China is because China really opened and embraced the world, and not only embraced the world but embraced all these ideas and, and, and Western ideas and Western capital. It really plugged it into the global economy. But that was actually my way of thinking. So I took the work, I analyzed the work, I look at the symbols of the work, and I compared against the social context and the historical context. It is this work relatable to the historical context and I'm like absolutely China is changing so I when I bought that work and I remember that was at the time where everybody was so political pop went into a big hype and they kind of like a collapsed and they were just people were just selling these works for nothing I bought that work for very little money at an auction like I bought that one in a dream engine for very little money because at that time when people were just dumping these works 
And I'm like, these are historical records. And people are like, no, it's like, and I'm like, I don't care. This, this is the reason why you, what, what I said that you have to be independent thinker. That I don't, I don't, I don't try to beat anybody else. I always try to develop a method that finds value to my thinking process, regardless of what the, mar- the, the, the market says. It could be successful, not successful. For me, it's irrelevant. For me, when I see the work, what I see is that I see history. I see Chinese history, the transition especially. I, when I see that work, is China in the 80s, that transition period. So when I acquired that work, was that? I did that analysis, I look at the work, I look at the historical context and the social context, and I try to see, like, predict the future. Like, do you think that the world is going to evolve, was going to follow that path? And I'm like, absolutely, I think that train is going to be right. And I acquired it, and then it turned out to be right. Now it's like M+, and everywhere and I mean I bought that work when it was I mean way before M plus and but that is actually my thinking process I mean same as uh, uh, Mac 2 which are, I mean I have quite a number of works right now is when I discuss with her I mean I, I, I start talking to Mac when she was really like really I mean I'm, I'm good friends with Mac so I can say this when she was a nobody I mean she's big now she's a, she will laugh about it but she was really like a, a nobody like really like nobody had a clue who she was and I love that idea that she was really questioning technology and, and she saw this, the post-internet, like this, the internet has changed and is dominating our lives and is having problems with our identity and the way that we socialize and, 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 and anxieties and insecurities and, and like this millennial generation has, the, the social behavior is deeply shaped by the internet and Mac was exploring that. I, I have one of her works, it's from her earlier series, she's known for the triptych series, right? from the, the two triptychs but I have one work that is way before that which is this cell phone this Nokia phone it's like one of those phones from uh, from the 80s when the, the, when the internet or the uh, cell phones used to be like a utility right then like uh, something that used get, controls our lives now it used to be our utility and it's so she has this cell phone and then she goes and kind of like puts these cherubs and angels and so on trying to glorify this cell phone and when I saw that work it's like this is where we're heading. This is the future. And I bought that work, and I remember, you can talk to the people at, at this art, I bought that work for nothing. But I saw it, I saw it like, I know how she's thinking. I know where she's heading. I mean, I bought that work, there was not even, I think, I bought that work ages ago, you know, the iPhone was there, but, but it, the internet was, was, the post-internet movement was still developing. It's not, it wasn't the internet that you see today. But that work, when, when I, I show it to people and people are like, oh, wow, the work is really good. So like, uh, it is because it's telling that future. This is where we are heading. So for me, I, I always relate the work heavily with the social context. Is this work relatable to the social context? In the, in the case of Marcus, she's highly relatable. I mean, it's, she's an artist that people should really pay attention. She is far more sensitive to the actual social reality of today's millennials than anybody else in the world. I haven't seen any single artist globally that produces work like she produces because she uses the internet, the entire internet as a tool. I have never seen everybody, and I have never seen any artist doing that. All the artists today go and uh, they still go and paint and no, she doesn't paint. She's a concept, she's like Duchamp's. She's like, I have an idea and I have a tool that is the internet. So let me hire, let me decide something in uh, artificial intelligence so she goes to the Sims video game makes the composition as she wishes to be like I see this my dream world and then let me cut it out so print it cut it out 
and I'm going to hire three people on the internet. She's using the internet to hire three random people, and I'm going to send them with very little instructions to paint these separate triptychs with very little instruction because I want to present those frictions that we have, especially millennials struggle with how they perceive their, 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 their world mentally and how it translates into the physical world. And so she hired these two people randomly, give it very little instructions. And you see all these three works and they come all mismatched, different color. And she's like, this is perfect because this is reality. And you know what I mean, probably anybody can relate to this. What you have in mind, it never comes out. Like the way that you speak is normally not the way that you think. You always have that friction. When you buy a work from Mac, I always tell you, if you're looking into Mac, always look the works that look very pixelated or have heavily mismatches because that's her point. Is that friction that we have with uh, that actually has generated uh, uh, on the internet. What you see in social media is not what happens in real life. I have met so many people that it's like, you look at social media, you look at Instagram and it's like a wow and you look at like real people like a, and you try not to be rude, like, ah, yeah, sure, like, is that you? <laughs> I have met many people like that. Of course, they use filters and so on. And that is, I mean, that, that could be another discussion, but, but uh, that, that, the sense of insecurity. And I, I think that the main impact of post-internet is, 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 on, is on identity. And especially you look at a lot of millennial works, any work that was produced primarily in the 2000s, 2010s, you see that a lot of works have no face. Both works, for example, Adriana Oliver. These works actually have no face, and you see Adrian Guini and so on. It's because they do have the struggle with identity. And you see it, it's quite common with millennials that were born in the mid to late 80s. They struggle with that identity because for them, the internet has split their egos in twos. You have your, per, your, your real ego and your alter ego. And, and today, normally their, their virtual ego dominates their real, their real ego. Some people are... I mean, this is true. I remember that. I remember when I was at the bank. It was hilarious. Like uh, people are going for social skill courses, like people to like uh, they're teaching these courses to teach people how to improve their social skills. When I was a kid, when I wanted to play with my friends, I had to go ring the bell and talk to their mother. Like, oh, I want to play football with her. You had to. But now these days, no. I remember when you wanted to, when I was a kid, you were trying to call the girlfriend or the, the girl that you like. You had to call one single number and that dad used to ask and you have to confront the ask. I want to talk to your daughter. Like, who is calling? Like, you had to do that. You had to nurse those social skills. These kids, they don't do it anymore. And that is a product of the internet. When I listen to you, I'm trying to synthesize what you just mentioned. So let me try to recap it. You began the conversation with infinity and your approach to art. It appears that you are attracted to works that instill the past, present and future all in one single moment. And this moment of singularity is the tipping point that you are trying to describe. That moment in time that connects both the past and the future in today's work. Yes. But it is not documenting a social development only because it needs to be significant as well or at least this is what you're trying or attempting yeah i think uh my thinking process i think uh i mean for for people in hong kong i invite you to go to the m plus to the especially to the olizig and my approach is not different i want i collect works that document history so every work that you see that i have in my collection is documenting uh, a social development 
Yeah, so your ultimate goal is to find these pieces that in hindsight, but with your foresight as well, identify these works of art that instill and represent a moment in time that are highly significant. Uh, well, I mean, I have many works that have gone nowhere, but... Uh, but, uh, but that is your goal. But that is my goal. I don't think I want to predict the future. I want to, at least I want to understand the near future. That is the, I mean, in some works, you have ended in the long-term trends, like the, the Lou Brothers or the, uh, and so on, for example, the Caderati that I have here, right, that, uh, that is on the living room, uh, is a work that, uh, uh, that I think is yet to materialize, but it's coming. So your ultimate goal is to find and identify works of art that in hindsight are significant and represent that yes. point in time of singularity. Correct. That is, that is a correct and this is actually what we do in banking. What we do in banking was like with the benefit of hindsight, we want to, like the measures that we took at that time, we're right. That is actually what we do in banking. That's what we, risk management in banking is all about that. It's taking measures today that you can evaluate in the future and backtest, we call it backtest, and backtest them to make sure that those decisions that you took in the past were correct. So it's the same approach. I took a very consistent approach. For example, I have a, a work that is very relatable to Hong Kong and I did a, a, a video review on, 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 my, on my YouTube and Instagram. I bought this work from, uh, from Gohan, right? very incredible, uh, talented uh, Hong Kong artist. And the work says, rent, that's it. This uh, like a, it mimics like a wall, like a wall of a, like a, any wall. Actually, the work is on the streets. It's actually, he made, a, he made me a copy of a work that was on a, that is somewhere in Soho. So in Soho, he has like a wall, he put like a, he wrote rent on a, on a wall. And he, he decided to put it in, in, in Soho, in Central, because it's kind of like an affluent, but the majority of people there are like a young, uh, I would say expatriates or very young, uh, thriving uh, smart people in tele, uh, uh, that are dominated by the rent. I mean, the rent because that, that area is quite expensive to live in. It's all young professionals. And the rent, living there, paying these high rents, it denotes more than just paying rent. It had this kind of like the symbol of a status. And, and I mean, that, that, that paying rent in that area, is, it represents more than just paying, than just having a house to live. And you can actually contextualize it in a much bigger, in a, a much bigger context. When I discussed the work with him, I was explaining that the reason I collected it is because I, the, I collected it because I understand the social importance of what rent means in Hong Kong society overall. I mean, to a point that Hong Kong has no, no GST or taxes because the rental system and the property system somewhat funds a big part of the Hong Kong economy. I mean, the rental market in Hong Kong is critical. It, it shapes who we are. It tells... The social dynamics of Hong Kong are heavily shaped by the rental market. Look at shops. You, uh, you can get different prices from the same shop if you go to, uh, let's say, to Causeway Bay or you go to Mong Kok because the rent levels are different. If you live in a particular area because you decide to pay more rent than in other areas, people will actually perceive you differently. So the concept of rent shapes significantly the perception, the social perception that people have about Hong Kong society. It's, it's fundamental. It's, it's like, for me, rent is as important as the H in Hong Kong. Like, the letter is, 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 is there. It's part of the, it's an integral part of, a, of Hong Kong society, paying rent. 
And that's the reason I bought it. Off-air, we briefly talked about the priority of why an artist makes a piece of work. What I'm interested in is to hear more about your thought process because let's say the why or intent and purpose are very clear and articulated. What about the execution of the work itself? Even if you have great thinkers who have a really clear why statement and yet the technique to express the why is not clear and if this is the case, is the why then still relevant? And if you were to focus so much on the why, does that mean you are mostly interested in abstract or conceptual art? Because what I see mostly on your walls today is primarily figurative. That's a real long question, but what is your viewpoint on this? The ones that I have on, yeah. Uh, yeah, I have more works on the storage there, but at the moment, yeah, it's uh, I'm on my figurative period, I guess. <laughs> But uh, but no, I also have a lot of abstraction. I I mean, I, I consider the Caderatia that is there a bit abstract. I mean, it's not really figurative. It's just, I mean, people that cannot see it, the work that is there is just uh, a canvas that is resembling, it's just a, a big canvas that is kind of like a pale color, resembles a, like a skin color. And it has these stitches that uh, represents the scar. And it's just that. It's just, you see a bunch of uh, stitches or a bunch of scars on a large canvas no color no nothing it's just it's monochrome but the symbolism of it is of, of that the scars made who we are uh, you know, I mean the, the work comes from I mean uh, especially racial tensions and cultural tensions leading into conflict and, and so on the work is a bit more complex than, uh, than, than that but, uh, but yeah I think the works that you see most at the moment are mostly figurative I agree but I think it's just because of my period I guess I mean I, I change the works about every six months at home. So when you look at a work, you mentioned that understanding the why is really critical. And is that your starting point when you assess it? I, I try not to go linearly. I, I'm always a big believer of a lateral thinker, the thinking. I, I try not to think linearly. And this is actually one of the, and this is something that I learned from uh, reading, especially uh, Taoism, uh, Lao Tzu that you need to and, and this is something that you, I really understood after understanding like an Asia way of thinking in Asia people try to think more laterally look at a, a multiple evidence like a, around like okay and then you try to com- make a context out of it in the West is a bit that the way of thinking is a bit more linear like a, this thing results in this and this continues with this and they continue with this so I always find that way of thinking is a bit more narrow uh, I mean they will take you an outcome and so on but but I always found that, that 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 way of thinking, the Western way of thinking, limits your perspective. And so when when I acquire a work, I not I I never try to. I have an end in mind, like okay, I want to acquire a work, right? But I don't have the end in mind. But I want to incorporate like this lateral thinking eventually to tell me, to guide me into whether this work is relevant or not. How can I, I try to give you an example? Because this is actually applied significantly in business. In business, they always, when you do innovation, courses on innovation, they always tell you like, uh, don't come up with a solution yet. Don't be so solution-oriented. That is very linear thinking. But they mean is like, have a purpose. Like, okay, I want to solve this. I just don't understand how at the moment. I want to think about it. And then eventually I will uh, come up with a, with a product. So they're trying to... To, to stimulate that lateral thinking 
and I approach art the same way. So usually when I go to a gallery, I see a work, I have this rule and I mean that my gallery friend, they know me because I'm known to be like a very turtle, the turtle uh, collector. I, I take my time. I can, I can take months because I need my research. I hardly buy, unless the work is small and perhaps well within my budget, I kind of like buy it on the spot, but normally I don't. Because for me, it's very important that I not, I not only look at the work, but I also look at the artist's career. Because I'm always keen to see if the artist, the artist is coming from somewhere, but if it's also is heading somewhere. So yeah, usually it takes, it takes time. So I need to kind of like, I look at the work, I understand it, take photos, look at the context, look at the dates and so on. And normally what happens, I come back home and I start relating it with, uh, with readings that I have or news that I'm, that I'm seeing or other movements. I try to understand the, 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 like the context of it, try to give it context. And that normally takes time. That's part of your research. And eventually, if the context is robust enough, I decide to buy the work. I, I can give you a very good example. A work that uh, I think is an artist that a lot of people misunderstand, uh, which is Julian Opie. I'm a big fan of Julian Opie. Big, big, big fan. And I remember when I bought uh, the work that is uh, near my, my bedroom, uh, I was discussing with someone that is an established gallerist. And it's like, ah, it's quite commercial and so on. It's so like, yeah, no, I understand. It's like everybody's talking about Julian Opie. But I see that for me, Julian Opie is that millennial urbanism. And the, the, before acquiring the work, I was researching a lot on the 80s. And I started from MTV and what the, the influence of TV happened uh, on societies globally. And the reason why that millennial urbanism of a Starbucks is so uniform across the world. You can go to Santiago de Chile or you can go to Beijing and the millennials behave with the exception of the language. They dress more or less the same. They behave more or less the same. They eat the same as Starbucks. They, they have like a similar behavior. And that is actually thanks to the propagation of especially marketing, especially, especially the 80s. The 80s was a critical moment in, in, in time. Not only because you had TV, that, like a satellite TV, that massified, uh, that broadcasted the, similar, uh, the same information across the world, but also because at the time there was this uh, tension between Coca-Cola and Pepsi that redefined marketing. And prior to the 80s and prior to the Cola Wars, marketing was very focused on the product. But after the Cola Wars, marketing became focused on the style, on the, on the lifestyle. So it changed. The product, it was irrelevant. It's just a cola, but it's about like the cola makes you look cool and so on. And that changing in marketing with assisted with, uh, with TV changed the behavior of millennials globally. That's the reason why millennials are far more comfortable traveling than someone that is like 70 years old. Because they know that, I mean, there's a, there's a McDonald's there, there's a Starbucks, there's this, there's that. There's, it's, it, for them, it's very uniform. And that's the reason I acquired Julian Opie. And it proved me right. Julian Opie... He's an artist that he, he puts his works on, on displays all over the world. And it's a work that resonates with anybody in the world. Anybody in the world will look at a Julian Opie. Maybe they don't know that it's a Julian Opie, but will understand like, oh, that is millennial urbanism. Right away. That's the reason I acquired it. You said that you typically conduct very deep research before making a purchase. But are there instances where you buy art very instinctively as well because you have an instant attraction to it and if so what type of work is this uh, i think yes i have a couple of works that were i think that was more towards my childhood and uh, i haven't shown you the the studio but i have two uh wilfredo lamps 
two two works. Actually, I have more. I have about five works. But the Wilfredo Lambs for me was a childhood memory. For me, they talked to me about me as a kid going to museums. It was this in this case the the National Museum. No, no, it wasn't the National Museum. It was the Casa de la Moneda in in, in Bogota. It's is a Casa, it used to be Casa de la Moneda. I how can I translate that? It's like the mint house where they used to mint the currency. Uh, back in the old days, now it's like a big hacienda and has been converted into a museum. And Fernando Botero donated big part of his uh, collection into that museum. So it's uh, his own private collection, which is huge. Uh, I highly recommend it. If you go to Colombia, you go to that museum, you'll be impressed. It's a huge collection of contemporary art. And in that museum, there were these works by Wilfrido Lam. And Wilfrido Lam always painted these little devils and little demons, and, and it's, it's all embedded with, uh, with voodoo and folklore, and uh, especially like uh, African uh, descendant folklore in Latin America and so on. Him, Wilfrido Lam being a, a, an immigrant. I mean, now I'm talking with hindsight, now that I know the story of Wilfrido Lam. But at that time, of course, I had no idea who Wilfrido Lam was. But I was always intrigued by the little devil. Because I will tell you something, my family is not religious. I mean, from a very young age, when I was when I was in Colum when I was born in Colombia, Colombia was a religious country, so we had religion being taught in the schools, and it was always like a fear God, and eh, and I'm like, oh, why you need to fear God? Like, I mean, this devil dude looks pretty cool. He's like doing his own thing and like goes around and quite, like he looks very open-minded. Actually, I, I, seriously, I was very. And I was having this fear, like, oh my God, I'm like, I'm probably worshipping the devil and so on. And I was always intrigued by the little devil, but the little devil for me is, is, is that symbolism of, of, of that freedom of thinking. And years later, I read uh, John Milton's The Paradise Lost, right? Which, that's another widely misunderstood book. I'm really with the devil on that one. I'm like, because the devil is like a free, uh, a free thinker. It's like, okay, I felt, and I'm like, I need to, I need to hustle. And I need to hustle for myself and I need to build something for myself and he's really a true independent thinker and so for me that that work that, that Wilfredo Lam really represents that genuine freedom of thinking that I had when I was a kid and I decided to buy them I, I have them out there and, and so the, I don't see this social context or anything for me it's more like a personal context so those works are deeply personal to me and I have them at home that's the right those are the only works that never move I have I have three more there but the two work, the two itching work that I have, uh, that are not, not that big. I will show you later. Those work never, uh, never move. And when I'm confused and stressed or something, I just look into those works and I'm like, you need to think, you need to think. It's, it's not about, you need to be beyond good and evil. That's what those works tell me. In a recent article, you mentioned that one third of your portfolio is with Hong Kong artists. Is this a really deliberate choice, or why is this? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think that comes out of a, an interview that I had uh, with Artnet, uh, that, uh, that comment, and uh, I was with Vivian. Uh, hi, Vivian. <laughs> ah, she's great. I think they are a twofold. I find, um, I'm certainly documenting what Hong, Hong Kong is going through is a transition of identity. Again, I'm not trying to say wrong or bad. I'm just, again, I'm always trying to be beyond good and evil. I try to understand the essence of things. And Hong Kong is going to, indeed, for this transition, right? Where you had kind of like uh, Hong Kong, especially like that, that, that generation that is pretty much running things 
they grew up during the period where like the British so it had like a more like a western type of a western led uh, type of culture and now they're migrating in, into a Chinese culture that is also very different from the China of the 70s it's not the China that you see today it's not the China of Mao which is a lot of people actually believe it or not a lot of people struggle with that understanding so it's, it's an issue with identity and I noticed similar to the to the Lu brothers is like Hong Kong is changing the, the way of thinking of Hong Kong is changing and I need to start documenting that I need to start capturing works that are that are, that are capturing that so elements, for example, of nostalgia, and I do remember, I mean, you see it a lot, especially here in Chengchao. When you walk around Chengchao, you see a lot of works that are like the old shops and the old Chachantangs and this nostalgic, uh, trying to capture that nostal- nostalgic element of, of changing Hong Kong. The M+, I mean, the whole uh, Hong Kong visual culture. And I do remember I'd, a, a couple of, I think it was last year, two years ago, at an at affordable art fair. And I made a comment like, all these kids, uh, actually I bought a work, so it was last year. All these kids, they are like on the, on the 20s. Sorry, sorry for calling them kids, I'm old, so I can call you kids. Uh, all the kids that are born in their early 20s had this romanticized version of Hong Kong. It's because they're being fed by the parents, by the media, by everything that Hong Kong is changing. But they don't, they don't understand why. But they know that the past is changing. And I'm like, okay, I want to document that changing process. Because it's, it's similar to happen... There is one work at the M Plus in the Ulizig called uh, the Great Great Criticism Channel, which is, is like a, so like they have they have like the soldiers with the red book above them. It says Chanel. So I think Hong Kong is going through that period, like it's abandoning that kind of like a, a particular uh, ident- social identity. In, the, in that case, was this kind of like a very socialist uniform political identity with the red book, and they are aspiring to someone else, which is this commercialism. And I think. That transition that Hong Kong is going is the opposite. It's abandoning this kind of like a Western-led whitewashing that everything that comes in the West is good and is absorbing, is opening up to a world that is pretty much unknown because a lot of people, that, 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 a lot of, a lot of uh, and again, because I'm standing, again, I try to stand beyond good and evil, a lot of fear that people have about China is because China is very unknown and it's very... And it's unknown, I think it's a language barrier. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I, was, I went for a haircut, right? So the, uh, the, the, the stylist always gave me like a newspaper, like magazines to read, right? So he puts on the left, he puts the English magazines, and on the right, he puts the Chinese magazines. And I look into that, I can only understand 50% of what he put me here. I'm missing 50% of this knowledge. And this is China today. I understand these are certain political dynamics and so on, but a lot of people actually, they don't understand like the history of China, the background of China, from where China is coming, why China is inspiring, and they fear that. It's a natural behavior. You just, when, you, when you're facing the uncertain, you just fear it. That is like instant, right? This is because we are animals and animals are strivers for survival. And one, one of the instincts that protects us is fear. When you see that is something that could be dangerous, you just fear it, right? And you try to stay away. So it's going through that process that people are because we're venturing into, a, into an unknown that has a history of being presented quite negatively. People are very afraid of that. But the evidence is showing like, actually, China has taken a lot of people out of poverty, has increased a lot of uh, uh, the livelihoods of millions of people. What they have achieved, no other society has achieved it. There, are, there were certain compromises, which what I see in, in China today with a rigid political system is not different than the progress that Japan had in, uh, in, the, 
I mean, in, in the 60s and 70s, or Taiwan, Taiwan was once a dictatorship, or Korea was once a dictatorship. I mean, the big economies in, in, in Asia, actually in the world, the big uh, leap forwards are always done through very restrictive uh, governments because it's just logic. It's, you need to be very orderly. So China is going through that transition. Going, China is opening up. Is is going through this massive transition. It's very tight. But when you look at it, hindsight, like the China that you see today, is far more relaxed than the China that you saw in the '80s. Far more relaxed. I mean, you have open capital markets. You have traveling. You have language. I mean, you can speak English in China. It's taught in English. I mean, it's taught in the schools. I mean, it's certainly not as open as other economies because, for example, United States or Europe has a cultural advantage because they dominated for many years. China is just catching up. But it's, it's just that fear. And the reason why I acquire a number of, uh, or I keep acquiring a lot of uh, uh, works from Hong Kong is because I'm trying to uh, try to, to uh, consolidate the change in transition, which, I mean, again, I, I'm very positive because I... When you study Chinese history, not only recent Chinese history from all, but you go all the way back to the to the emperors and so on. For them, that social stability was paramount. China is I always see China that is that their, their main strive is always social stability. It's like a stability. It's like their number one goal. It's not financial progress. It's not richness. It's not. It's stability. They want everything to be very orderly, quietly, because if everything is predictable, then everything is very easy. I mean, of course, tensions are because China is very rich, so everybody wants a piece of that cake. It happened before when the British and the Opium Wars. The same thing. Everybody wants a piece of that cake. Ray Dalio, many, many philosophers actually talk that history repeats itself in many different shapes, but it always repeats itself. As an art collector, what are you trying to achieve? What drives you to purchase art, or why do you collect art? I mean, my mission for for as a collector and as a collection is always to uh, to stimulate curiosity, and I always invite people because I know people. I mean, I get it all the time on my Instagram, but people agree and people disagree, which is fine. I always invite people to see things beyond good and evil. It's absolutely fine to have your your your, your perceptions and your values, your biases, your beliefs. That is fine. Yeah, but always try to see it from another perspective. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I, I, I was with Sarah and we went to see the Kusama show. And we were at the section that it was called death. And then she asked me, I love Sarah because we always got into these very deep uh, conversations. So she asked me about uh, about death. What was my, my standing on death? And uh And I tell her, like, I look, I'm, I said, like, she asked, do you like to live, like, forever? And I'm like, uh, not really. And I'm like, uh, why is that? Like, everybody wants to live, like, uh, forever and so on. And I said, like, yeah, it's because this is actually my perception. And again, standing beyond good and evil. And I, I give you the example of the movie Interview with a Vampire, which you have this Lester. I think one of the vampires is, like, living forever. And one one point, he's trying, this guy is trying to find ways to kill himself. Because when time becomes an infinite resource you don't see change happening we have this romanticized and the people why think people live on on for example people think that uh, they want to live longer and eternal eternally for two reasons one because i mean certainly they have uh they miss their family they don't want to be because family give them joy but uh and i agree with that one but the version that i don't agree with is the one that they have this romanticized version about like ah they can see time changing that is false When you live through time, you don't see change passing by. The reason is because you don't have the capacity to see it from a different perspective. So in the movie, 
or in the book, the interview with the vampire, the book is actually presented from the interview from the narrator's perspective. So he's trying to romanticize all these these vampires living through time because he has never experienced that. So he he only knows from from hind with the benefit of hindsight that it was these old times and it was these recent times. He finds like, wow, how amazing! But he never went through it. It's like it's the same thing as the. Which actually a lot of politics exploit that, like uh, I mean, the, the, my narrative of uh, of being Colombian, like oh, how amazing is the Western world? How amazing is Europe? How amazing? Because I never lived there, but I'm sure that if I go and talk to someone in Europe, it's like oh man, salaries are bad, taxes are high. The perspective is different. So I said, I, I told that to Sarah. The reason I want to die is because if I live perpetually, my perspective is very narrow. I mean, I don't have the benefit of hindsight because time is a constant it will be a constant for me that I will see everything so I don't see change and and it will be very sad because I will see people passing right and I won't and that will be morally uh, devastating and I give you the example of a, in anybody that is for example, an expert living in Hong Kong will relate to that that you come here and you see people coming and going we were discussing about earlier people coming and going all the time and the difficulties that that had on making like a long-lasting relationship, especially like a romantic relationship. I experienced that when I was in Singapore. That because you never want to get too attached because you know that people will constantly pass by. So imagine like me, I'm a, I'm a foreigner. I have decided to live in Hong Kong for a long time, but I know that all my friends are going to pass by. That's going to morally devastate me. So I, I tried like, a look, that's the reason I, I don't want to live forever. I want to decay like everybody else. And then similarly, if you tell me that everybody's living eternally, then there's no change. That's the reason I, that's actually the, the big fundamental criticism that I have on God. God cannot know everything because he knows everything is imperfect. Because there's no exploration, there's no, there's no intrigue. So if everybody lives eternally, nothing will change. Nothing. It's like, the, you see like the concept of groupthink. If you see everybody thinking in that, that same way, What's the point of having a meeting? I think we spoke about this off-air, but we discussed how your experience of living in different places has opened up new perspectives of seeing the world in front and around you. You've lived in Singapore, and you are now based here in Hong Kong. What can you say how your perspective on Asian art has evolved over the years? Yes, I and I can give you a very specific example, and this is, and I want to shoot out to the employers because Thanks to the M plus, uh, I managed to visualize this. Gutai. Gutai, a Japanese art, post-war Japanese art, right? What, something that you don't understand or you don't see in the West, pretty much is very little covered, was the cultural revisionism that happened after uh, the, the bomb dropped. The Americans came to, uh, to Japan and for eight years, they technically did this huge revisionism to a point that they pushed the Japanese culture to feel like inferior. Japanese, the Japan actually even changed the way they dress for meetings, everything. It was highly influential, highly, yeah, it was, it was, it was cultural revisionism. Yeah. To a point that, that uh, I mean, until today, I mean, you see it like, uh, uh, because I mean, that's, I mean, that's another story, but uh, 
But uh, America, I mean, U.S. politics, and I want to be very clear that my criticism was with America, with American foreign policy. America is a great country, but foreign policy. But foreign policy, especially post-war, because America was trying to dominate the world and become like the major superpower. So one was one was like this cultural war. So they come to Japan and pretty much tell them like whatever Japanese way of doing anything is bad or is inferior to the, the, uh, the ways of the West. So they change the constitution, they pretty much extreme powers of the, to the monarchy. And I mean, anyway, there was this massive cultural revolution. And you see it, in, especially in Gutai art. How Gutai art started? So you have this group of Japanese artists that believe strongly on, or they, were, they, were, they grew up uh, doing Nihonga practice, yeah, traditional Japanese art of uh, ink and, uh, and calligraphy. And suddenly you have these Americans coming and saying like, uh, no, 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 it's nice, pretty, but that's not art today. Art today is abstract expressionism, so you have to do it this way. And the Japanese, by because by education, being uh, 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 by the cultural education, being humble, uh, humble and so on, they decided like, okay, we're not going to rock the boat, we're just going to learn those ways. And they decided to kind of like, uh, it's, they, it's actually it's a beautiful story. They take, they take Jackson Pollock and kind of like a glorify them, like <laughs> give it like a godlike kind of like a status. Like, okay, we have, this is our benchmark, Jackson Pollock. So whatever, any work that looks like Jackson Pollock is good, <laughs> which is funny. But you can realize like the impact of the cultural revisionism that it had. But the Japanese were inside Japan. They, were, they had this kind of like a spirit, like, but we are Nihonga, we are, we are this is Japan, this is our ways. And they start doing work quite differently. So they came up with um, uh, Shiraga, gesturalism and so on. And that work became very unique. And it's until very recently, very, very recently, probably 10 years ago or so, it was, Gutai was overrepresented as a derivative of abstract expressionism in, in art schools. And a lot of people, I'm sure that a lot of people in the West still think that Gutai is some sort of like a, copy of uh, abstract expressionism they don't understand the cultural significance of those eight years that happened in japan and uh, how culturally impactful it was and this is something that you also see for example in korea in many other places in, in, in taiwan the m plus has this other room on, uh, on chinese diaspora there's one work there that is i found it so smart it's by a chinese artist so he digs this hole in, uh, in beijing and at the bottom of the hole he puts this uh, tv with a uh, with the sky, a beautiful blue sky, and it's called. I think the work is called "Skies of Brooklyn." And uh, so he look at the sky. He sees this like uh, he's looking at the other side. It's like oh, the other side is so beautiful, which is it's totally relatable to me because this is actually how I used to see the world when I was a kid. Oh, the West is the Western world is so nice. What everything that I see on TV. I actually have a work in uh, in my bedroom that is related to that. But people don't understand that the significance of, of post-war cultural cultural revisionism the impact that it had in Asia. And the West until this day hasn't really grasped the, the impact that that had on artists. They still present artists as, a, as derivatives. I mean, you see like a lot of local fairs. I mean, our, I'm actually doing a talk for, for Art Basel in uh, one of the one of the institutions. We're preparing that one. And I'm preparing it with, a, with, a, with an artist that is from Hong Kong. And she tells me, even at the moment she's based in London, she tells me like, I'm, you know how annoying it is when people tell me like, ah, she's an Asian artist. I'm an artist that is from Hong Kong. I'm an artist. There's a big difference between an Asian artist than an, uh, an artist that is from Asia. It's a huge difference. 
that when you present someone like a, he's an Asian artist, is reductive. And this is something that I disagree. And this is an effect that happened post-war. And we still, I mean, until this day, we are, the West is, hasn't been able to reconcile that. It takes time. And I see it. There's, I, I've been researching people that follow me on Instagram. People do know that I'm very advocate on this, uh, I call it the post-Western world, which I see these tensions, uh, for example, the political tensions that you see with China and the United States are actually deeply rooted in that. And recently, uh, Xi Jinping made a quote on a, on a newspaper because uh, they're heavily trying to invest heavily on, a, on Saudi Arabia. And he was trying to say that he wants to show the Chinese way as the model for emerging economies to, uh, to develop that is not always the Western way, the, a way to success. And that is true because if you look at the, from Japan to Korea and so on, they always had this kind of like an Asian spin, which is primarily on, uh, on heavily on socialism because Asian societies are very social based, right? Uh, since millennia. So he's trying to promote like, uh, it's not always the Western way. You can always do it your own way. He's, he just said, like, don't do it the Chinese The article never says do it the Chinese way. No, you can always do it your own way. Yeah, not the Western way. And this is something that is, that until this day, and this is something that the main struggle that you had uh, today between the East and the West is that the West, this is the first time that the intellectual level of Asia is that part of the West and it, can, it is challenging. So like a, no, not anymore. You don't come here to colonize. And it's true. And I found that very beautiful. It's very uplifting. This is another reason why, why I'm here. That I found it extremely uplifting because they have this Asian people today has gained this confidence, this big confidence, intellectual confidence, social confidence to say like, no. I mean, we were discussing that earlier about like the education in Hong Kong. And I said, like, Hong Kong people, I found them incredibly well prepared to confront the world that is, that is coming. Because they speak at least three languages in Hong Kong. Do you have, it's a country that the East and West is like a standard. I mean, eating burger or, or noodles is like like everyday thing. It doesn't, get, it doesn't surprise anybody here. It's just food. And I remember that we were doing this staycation with my, my girlfriend. And it was this, we were at the, one of the hotels here. And we were for breakfast and it was this kid. And it, this kid was from, a, I would say like a... Uh, mixed family, right? So I think the mother was from Hong Kong and uh, the father was a uh, uh, Westerner. And the kid and the mother asked the kid, what, is, like, what do you want for breakfast? Do you want noodles or you want eggs? And that stuck with me. And the kid like, uh, no, mom, I think I want noodles. And that stuck with me. And I'm like, these kids are so culturally sensitive, so culturally aware. Try to ask the same question to a kid in US or Europe. Do you want, you, you want pasta or you want noodles? I mean, like, the whole thing about, like, eating fish with the head is, like, that is, like, crazy. I mean, like, the level of cultural insensitivity that you find, for example, in, in the United States, across, not, not with the, the people that you and I know because they are they're well-educated and affluent, not with the mass, like, the mass people, right? It's people that, I mean, deep fried calamari is, like, so, but, but having intolerance, for example, to food, it, it tells you, like, the level of cultural intolerance that they have. And this is not something that you find in Asia, in people in Hong Kong. Really, you can serve, like really, pizza or wonton noodles. It makes no difference here. No difference. And it's the same thing in China. In China, way, like, rapidly adopted this Western way of, uh, 
of doing. You see all these Chinese tourists, right? And like they go through Paris and so on. They probably speak a few a little bit of the language. They are like they are far more culturally aware than in the West. Like in China, especially, the Chinese are, are far more willing to travel overseas and explore the world than an American and European trying to come to Asia. I have friends that have never been to Asia. That's a really fascinating viewpoint. And it is true that in Hong Kong, it is very normal to send your kids to a Western university. So they both have an Eastern and a Western upbringing. Whereas in the West, it is less common or very unique to send your kids to China or Asia to study. But I'll tell you something that uh, about the cultural uh, uh, awareness of uh, the Chinese families when they send their kids overseas. They said, go and study overseas, but you come back for Chinese New Year. So you say, like, uh, you're getting an education, but your roots are here. And I'm fine if you go study there, no problem. But your roots are here. So there is a generation in Asia that is very used to ambiguity or living with both the Eastern and Western cultures and attitudes. And it's, and it's because the same kids that they argue with their parents when they come back to Hong Kong, they go and argue with their friends when they're back to U.S. Because they all argue both ways. It's never like, a, they never get like fully Americanized or, or, or Westernized or fully, they will live in both worlds. And that is intellect. They know that as, uh, eventually as they're going to mature and so on, they will realize that they have that way to balance with both worlds. And they know that these, I mean, these kids actually have a better perception of, of what, or better understanding what perception is. That what I'm, what, I, what I'm facing here is just perception. It's just culture. And they are better trained than someone that has never left the country like in the United States. In Asia, people are, I, I always find, culturally, I'm far more culturally educated far more culture something that I notice here and I'm sorry about Colombia but I I mean I love my country but, but the, this is the reality and I'm going to get a bad rep and go uh, uh, I don't care but this is, the, this is true I'm beyond good and evil the truth is like a country like Latin America closed economies people are very narrow minded they find a, a difficulty in understanding that there could be another way of seeing things uh, looking at, at the same thing they struggle with that I have a final question for you, Jacobo, and of course, the Last Supper. If you were to have your Last Supper, which artist would you like to invite and why? I think, uh, I mean, I always try to look at someone that can, uh, had the capacity to transcend, right? Like, uh, and if I narrow down of uh, people that have been highly influential on my way of thinking, I think is, I don't know, it could be so many, but I think if I really narrow down to one person, I know that it will be a very boring uh, coffee. But I think it will be Nietzsche. That uh, especially I will ask him, uh, what was your thinking when you wrote Good and Evil? Beyond Good and Evil, what was the thinking? I'm sure it's going to be like extremely boring. I won't, it won't be pleasant. But I, I select him because his works have been, his writing has been highly influential. Uh, yeah, I think uh, that him and uh, Lao Tzu perhaps. Lao Tzu is, the way that he looked at nature, he was so down to earth. It's absolutely beautiful, absolutely inspiring. He's the, this guy's, like the teachings of Lao Tzu is, is like when you talk to your old grandparent, it's like, just look at this. Like, it's just like so logical that you forget sometimes that, 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 that the most complex explanations, the, the most complex problems can be resolved with a simple explanation. 
And uh, he strives for that. So Lao Tzu really strives for that sense of simplicity. Break it down and then always strive for simplicity. It's been a really insightful and refreshing conversation. Many thanks, Jacobo, for your time and inviting me over to your place in Chengchao. No, thanks for coming. And, uh, you know, I really find, I, I don't know, I mean, we discussed that earlier. I mean, my incentive to do this is, is, is really to, to foment that, uh, that ecosystem, the art ecosystem in Hong Kong. We are gifted. We have a massive asset. We live in, the, in one of the largest art markets in the world. We have incredible talent, incredible intellect. And I think is and I'm learning this from from my experience with the M plus it's time to for us to say we can lead this. Yeah. Like the boss yeah. Like a boss. We can do this. We we this is Asia. This is intellect. This is we have intellect. We have achieved intellectual parity. We can do it. It's no longer like ah let's look at the way. No, it's we we this is our way. And it could be that way. Many thanks, Jacobo. No, no, thank you very much. Many thanks for listening to this episode of The Last Supper with art collector and advisor Jacobo Garcia. If you enjoyed listening to The Last Supper, kindly support us by sharing, commenting, subscribing to our channel or giving our podcast a star rating. Your support is crucial in raising the awareness of art in Asia. Thank you again for listening. Please check the additional information in this podcast description. And before you go... The Last Supper podcast supports the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association, a member-based non-profit organization of established local and international art galleries in Hong Kong.